Hi guys, I'm Amy with Not Guilty by Reason of Insanity, a true crime podcast focusing on victims of crimes in Massachusetts. This week we'll be discussing the case of Molly Bish. Molly Bish was a 16-year-old who went missing on June 27, 2000 from her lifeguard job at Cumming Pond in Warren, Massachusetts. For anyone who's unfamiliar with that area, Warren is located in western Massachusetts. There are a lot of wooded areas in that part of uh, the state. According to her mother, Maggie Bish, she dropped her off as she usually did every morning. This morning was different because this was the last time Maggie would see her daughter Molly alive. The day before her disappearance, June 26, 2000, Maggie had also dropped her daughter off. The day prior, saw a man in a white car with a mustache smoking a cigarette. Maggie stared this guy down like... She wasn't going to leave until this guy was gone. They made eye contact. She felt really uncomfortable, so she decided not to leave until after this man left. And I can't say that I blame her. Apparently that night, Maggie asked Molly if she felt uncomfortable or if anybody was bothering her. She had said no that Nobody was bothering her. She said that they were just fishermen in the area and that nobody was bothering her. Uh, the morning of her disappearance, when Maggie dropped Molly off at work, she didn't see the guy in the white car, so she felt more comfortable leaving her there. And there was a worker there who was delivering sand. I haven't been able to get a lot of information on that particular individual, And there are varying reports on what time exactly it was that she was dropped off. I've read 10 a.m., but I can't be sure about that. So that morning, it was supposed to be the first day of swimming lessons. They were due to start. So I'm assuming that also probably made her mother feel a little more comfortable knowing there'd be a lot more people around. I, I know personally I would feel better about more people being there and she was almost 17 so you know she's not gonna stay there the whole day while her daughter's at work and uh, I'm not sure exactly what time people started to arrive at the beach Uh, but when they did she was nowhere to be found eventually Beachgoers started to realize that there was no lifeguard on duty and she had left her keys, towel, radio, and other personal items. I think her lunch was there. And this was, they thought this was odd. So some people called the parks department to complain about there not being a lifeguard. And they actually, I believe they informed the Warren Police Department And that afternoon, her parents got a phone call that changed their lives forever. She had been, she had not been seen at her lifeguard post all day. All of her belongings were at the beach. Her parents immediately knew something was wrong. This was not her character at all. And I know when I was 16, my parents would have thought nothing of me disappearing. (laughs) They would have known I was fine. Um, parents definitely know their children and the Warren Police Department really responded pretty quickly. They called in the Massachusetts State Police and launched, launched the largest, most extensive missing person search in Massachusetts history. And 
I give her family a lot of credit for being such amazing advocates for her. So despite this huge search with police, dogs, divers, they uh, roped off the beach, there was no sign of her and there was really very little evidence left behind. Uh, Her personal belongings were collected as evidence and they collected some cigarette butts that they found at the beach. And the case did go cold. Her family did not stop advocating for her. Her case appeared on 48 Hours, Unsolved Mysteries, America's Most Wanted. And her mother, Maggie, after... After a year, her mother Maggie started working with a sketch artist to recreate uh, the sketch of the man that she saw the day at the day at the beach, the day prior to her disappearance. And this sketch was, if you look it up, it was incredibly detailed and just really showed an accurate picture of the man that she saw that morning. And In 2003, a hunter had told his friend that he found a blue bathing suit in the woods in 2002 at Whiskey Hill, and that's in Palmer. These towns are all very close to each other. Warren, Palmer, it's all right there. And a search of the area in Whiskey Hill um, resulted in the discovery of her body, and the cause of death was ruled a homicide. I've read a couple of different reports, and one report said that there was no official um, cause of death that they could find because of the amount of time that she was out there. And another one said blunt force trauma to the head and manual strangulation with the hyoid bone being broken. Um, other reports did say that it was ruled a homicide with no specific cause of death due to the length of time. So there's varying information about what exactly, what exactly it was. She was exposed to the elements for three years and there are no specific reports about her being sexually assaulted. However... Her bathing suit was found by a hunter, and this was obviously not with her body. And given the length of time that she was in the woods, it does seem possible that this might have been due to weather or animal predation, but this really seems unlikely. What's more probable is that she was not in her bathing suit when she was left in the woods. It's not clear if she was buried or if her body was just well hidden. And this was less than five miles from where Molly went missing. And there only appear to be two witnesses in this case. One witness, um, a reported classmate of Molly's, had seen the same man at the pond in the days before her disappearance. The other witness was a worker who noticed a similar white car parked at the cemetery that connects to the pond through a footpath that goes through the woods. So it's like there's only one main entrance and parking lot to the pond, but there's an adjacent cemetery that connects through a footpath. And this person saw 
the similar white car there on the day that she disappeared. And I'm wondering what would lure a 16-year-old girl away from her lifeguard stand. And there really isn't any sign of a struggle at the beach. No items thrown about or anything like that. It looks like she just walked away willingly. So I'm wondering what would make a 16-year-old girl go with someone willingly. They could have been an attractive person. You know that's your age. That's a boy. You know, that was what would lure me away when I was 16. Um, Another possibility would be that they have a gun. And then the third possibility, which I seem to find the most likely is that they would use some kind of a ruse to lure you away to a more private area where they could abduct you. And this seems like the most likely scenario to me. And I was thinking about what kind of a ruse would work on a 16-year-old girl and what would lure a lifeguard away from where she's supposed to be. And the only thing that I can think of um, would be a person in need of help. A man just running up and saying, please help me, my son's hurt. He's over here knowing she's a lifeguard and would want to help. This would be pretty much the perfect ruse. And this was before everyone had cell phones, before information was sent quickly and instantly, before everything was available on the Internet immediately. So a plea for help would probably have caused a young girl to go and help. The first aid kit was left on the beach. I'm curious if the two-way breathing valve was actually left in her first aid kit or if it was missing because that's something that is in all lifeguard kits. So I worked as a lifeguard. I'm curious if there was anything missing from that lifeguard kit. And the case went cold until 2009 when the next major case came out of Florida, when a Southbridge man, um, Rodney Stranger, murdered his girlfriend, Crystal Morrison. He stabbed her nearly 40 times, claiming later that he had no memory of the crime. He was briefly held at Florida State Hospital after being incompetent to stand trial. I just want to talk for a minute about Rodney Strager's crime, that he stabbed his girlfriend 40 times. 40 times. Just think about the physical expenditure of energy of what it would take to stab a person 40 times. He stabbed her so many times that he nearly decapitated her. This has to be an incredibly horrific and traumatic way to die. I can't even imagine. And to claim no memory whatsoever. He almost cut her head off. She was decapitated. I, I mean, this is just absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal and horrific. And what he did after... The crime is probably just as bad as the crime itself, so my heart just goes out to her family and her sister, and just what a horrible, horrible crime. I fucking can't with this guy, for real.
Okay, so this Rodney Stanger is just over here like, who, me, what? I've never murdered anyone before. Okay, Rodney, people don't just decapitate somebody on their first murder. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but you cut your girlfriend's head off and people are supposed to believe that this is the first time he's murdered anybody. I don't know if I'm buying it, honestly. So who is this guy? Uh, Rodney Stanger. The short answer is he's a fucking scumbag extraordinaire from Southbridge. And him and his dirtbag, tent-living, vagrant brother, who looks like a greasy, nasty, ponytailed Joe Dirt, are... This just makes me so angry. It really does. I'm going to get all whipped up about this. So Ronnie, the brother, drove the exact same car that was seen at the pond the day of Molly's disappearance. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they ever found this car, to be perfectly honest. I'm not sure, though. And if anyone does know, please hit me up and tell me I don't think that they ever found it. And at one point, I think that they tried to dig up a car out of the ground that was buried in some campground. I'm not sure what happened with that either. I could go on an absolutely endless rant about these guys. So Rodney lived on um, Everett Street in Southbridge for 40 years or something like that. And people are just supposed to believe that he packed up and moved to Florida a month after Molly disappeared because he liked the weather in Florida better. I'm not buying it. I'm really not. I don't think anyone is buying it. And the shit about this guy goes from bad to worse. So he was a Vietnam veteran who liked to brag about the horrible shit that he did to scare his girlfriend of 20 years, Crystal. that's That's a real fucking man, really. And he was known to kill puppies that he bred when he couldn't sell them, according to his neighbors. Like I said, scumbag extraordinaire. But on a more serious note, killing animals is part of the triad of uh, psychopathy. So this guy's just a dirtbag all around and a psychopath. Uh, After he was arrested for murder, his ex-wife and daughter came forward about the years of abuse that they suffered. He'd lock his daughter in the basement. So he was known to harm and abuse children. His friends came forward um, after this, they weren't surprised by what he did. Nobody really was. And he matches the sketch exactly. You guys should honestly Google his picture and look at the picture that Molly's mother Maggie had drawn of the guy that she saw that day. It's him. So they found an FID card in an old wallet of his that was renewed just a couple of weeks before Molly's disappearance, and it looks exactly like the sketch. So please just Google it. And I'm also curious who this dirtbag hung around with. And you know what they say, birds of a feather. And I'm sure not all of the people that he hung around with were bad people, but some of them have to know something about his behavior and his patterns in the time around this disappearance and after he killed his girlfriend he went next door and tried to kill his neighbor and her son um the son called 911 while he was strangling the neighbor so he wants people to believe he killed his girlfriend nearly decapitated her killed puppies bragged about killing people in vietnam abused his ex-wife 
locked children in basements, but didn't do this particular crime. So when the Mass State Police interviewed him, they went down to Florida and he was like, the murder site, the dump site? I, I've never been I've never been there. So his friends gave him up. They said that he was known to fish in that pond and hunt in those woods. So and he was seen at the scene of the crime in his brother's car. People aren't stupid. They can connect the dots. Her mother saw him there. A classmate saw him there. A worker saw him there. Maybe he just doesn't remember. Like, he didn't remember killing his girlfriend. He seems to have problems with his memory. He keeps playing dumb. Even weirder than this was the cryptic messages that his um, girlfriend was giving to people about him being a murderer in the days before she died. First of all, she told her co-workers that Rodney was going to murder her. She was a CNA at an assisted living facility, I believe. She told people that Rodney was going to murder her. And these people weren't even close to her. So, And she spoke with her sister in the days before the murder, who she hadn't spoken with in nearly 18 years and was giving cryptic messages about him being a murderer. So... She was looking to get in contact with the FBI and the Mass State Police in the days before her murder, and I think his number was up. I think she was going to give him up. I think she might have even had some evidence hidden somewhere. If I were her, I would have buried it as an insurance policy. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that a creep like him kept a souvenir. There's not even a doubt in my mind. So they found little girl's hair ties and other stuff that no grown man should have had. And there's no explanation. He doesn't explain anything. And the only reason police connected him to this crime was because Crystal's sister, Bonnie Cannon, who lives in Massachusetts, notified the police in Mass after her sister's murder about the cryptic messages that her sister was giving to her. And I'm going to read you uh, Bonnie's description of the conversation with her sister in the days before her murder. And this is an article from the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. So I'm going to read from that right now. She told me there was a very good chance that she was going to be murdered that night by her boyfriend. At first, I thought I was talking to my girlfriend because she, too, was involved in a similar abusive relationship, Miss Kernan recounted. She said that her sister asked for telephone numbers for the Massachusetts State Police and the FBI, and she wanted the FBI to come to her home and talk to her and Rodney, but did not want the Marion County Sheriff's Department involved. While Crystal and I had been talking, she heard my bird screeching in the background and asked, who's that? And I said, that's not a who, it's a what. It's my, my bird, Molly. And she hesitated a moment, and I said, oh. Miss Kernan said when her sister called the next morning, she couldn't talk openly. Miss Morrison said she hadn't gone to work that morning because she couldn't work while she was under duress. Miss Kernan said that her sister, she asked her sister to explain I wanted to know just what was going on down there, she said. Miss Kernan said that her sister said nothing for a moment and then whispered into the phone one word, murders. And I said, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And she said, no, I'm not. And I said, oh, my God. And then she said, so what's your bird's name? And I said, Molly, thinking to myself, how could she have forgotten when I just told her the night before? And then it hit me and I said, oh, my God. And she said, yes. 
Miss Kernan said Miss, Mr. Stanger and her sister had lived in Southbridge before moving to Florida. She said Mr. Stanger was a fisherman and a hunter. He was familiar with Common, Cummins Pond in Warren and the Whiskey Hill area where Warren and Palmer meet. So this has been confirmed that he knew exactly where both of those places were. And then he lied to the Mass State Police when they went to Florida to interview him after the murder of his girlfriend. There's a lot here that's strange, and he's not the only suspect with really weird circumstances happening. And I am going to get into these other guys as well. But people just act like this girl disappeared and that there's no clues. There is so much to dig into in this case that just gets skimmed over. And it is absolute bullshit. I wouldn't be surprised if he had some kind of accomplices that worked with him. And kids have been going missing in Western Mass for years. People who commit these crimes are serial predators. And they need to be stopped. Light needs to be brought to these cases and things that have gone cold or unresolved really need to be looked at again a lot more closely. So I just, it enrages me. It makes me so upset. So upset. So Rodney isn't a known sex offender. He's had drug charges and run-ins with the law, but the second person of interest is actually a sex offender. And I first of all don't believe that Rodney is mentally ill, and I don't believe that this crime the kidnap and murder of Molly Bish, I do not believe that it was committed by a mentally ill person, and I will tell you why. So people who are highly psychotic and disorganized do not attempt to cover their tracks like this. And this is evidenced, his organization is evidenced by his move to Florida. Um, a disorganized or psychotic person would not pack up all their belongings, fill out a change of address, spend a month wrapping up their affairs in Massachusetts, and simultaneously finding a place to live while coordinating all of this with their girlfriend. This takes time, planning, higher-level organizational thinking. These are not the actions of a mentally ill man. And people say, what about when he killed his girlfriend and ran next door and tried to strangle the neighbor? And here's what I believe happened with that. He stabbed his girlfriend in a fit of rage. Clearly, this is done with, within a fit of rage. He stabbed her nearly 40 times. And I believe that this is because she was going to the police and she was going to report him for murder. And I personally feel that she had evidence. And I think that they should search that trailer park with uh, ground penetrating radar and see if she buried or hid something in that trailer park. So he realizes, shit, I, I can't clean this up after he stabs her 40 times. He can't get rid of her body. It's in a trailer park. People will see him. There's too much blood. He can't get rid of all of it. People are going to look for his girlfriend. You know, they'll come, that's the first place they'll go is where she lives. Her job, her sister, the police, they're all going to start looking. So he knows there's no way of getting away with this at all. So he's completely devolved and lost control at this point after stabbing his girlfriend. So he starts to come up with like an endgame plan. 
He thinks maybe I'll go next door and kill the neighbor. So when they catch me, I'll look crazy or they'll think it's some kind of a serial predator and maybe I can get away with it that way. And he he may have um, also been planning to hurt the child in this case, and I'm not necessarily sure about that part, but maybe he's always been interested in that kid. You don't know. What I do know is that little boy is an absolute hero, saving his mom from somebody lunatic breaking into the trailer and trying to kill her. So there is other evidence that Rodney is an organized predator. And um, this is the alleged stalking and the military background. He passed a psych exam at some point. He's had tactical training. Most people in the military are not predators, the vast majority, but it speaks to the organization and higher level thinking. He has a history of child abuse and familial violence. He was manipulative enough to silence the victims through scare tactics. He has a history of harming animals. And that's part of the the triad. So there's a lot of planning involved with breeding and selling dogs and then killing them when they aren't useful to you. It's, It's planning. Purchasing and owning firearms. Renewing his RFID card on time. These are all higher level organization, executive functioning, all of that stuff. He is not suffering from any major mental illness. His evasive behavior, moving, lying about being unfamiliar with the crime scene and the abduction site, if he were innocent of these charges, he would have just admitted it. You know, he would have admitted that he knew the area, but said it wasn't him. These are all evasive tactics that are not used by innocent people. He's doing the whole... Um, admit what you can't deny and deny what you can't admit. So that's Rodney. He is um, the first suspect in this case. And I think that this might be a good place to stop. And I'm going to do a follow-up episode where I go over the other suspects in this case and the other circumstances. And I also have like a page of questions that I wrote down that I want to know. So I think this is a good place to stop. We'll go over the the theories and the other suspects in the follow-up episode in part two. So for now, this is my first episode, and I'm still learning. So if you have any feedback, please let me know. It's a work in progress. And if there's anything else that you have questions or anything like that, Um, I'm working on getting my Twitter, Facebook, website, all that set up this week. So that's the plan. If there's, um, there'll be more to come soon and I'll let you guys know in the next podcast exactly when, um, when I have it all set up and, and we'll, we'll cover more in the next episode. So Let me know if there's anything that I can work on or anything that I can do to make things better. So for now, I'm Amy, and you've been found not guilty by reason of insanity.